Well, first of all, a huge thank you, church, for uh, that wonderful gift and uh, just acknowledging 10 years. Amazing to look back and look at the pictures. Malia was two and a half, and uh, now she's almost as tall as Lori. So, yeah. And uh, I think 10 years of ministry has taught me that it really is something that you do together as a family. And uh, yeah, I get to be the the spokesperson, but it really is an entire family effort. So it's as much a celebration of them as, as for me. So thank you. Well, we do start a brand new sermon series today on the book of Ephesians, and I've been really excited about this, uh, doing all the research and work. And uh, I know if I can get excited about it and personally fired up, then uh, hopefully that can be passed on to you as well. Uh, We call it the book of Ephesians, but really it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul back to the church that he had planted several years before. Christians have debated for centuries, what's kind of the heart of Paul's theology? What is the heart of the message that God has given Paul to tell the world? And a lot of people have said, well, I I think it's the book of Romans, the letter from Paul to the church in Rome. But a lot of people that are way smarter than me say, you know what? Actually, when you look at it, I think it's the book of Ephesians. And uh, and I agree. I think this is the heart of uh, Paul's whole theology of everything that God used that incredible man uh, to tell us. Now, uh, this letter is completely unique in the second half of the Bible. When you look at all of the letters in the second half of the Bible, written by the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, Jesus' brother James, they are all to a specific church with specific different issues. Good issues, bad issues, but they're always, these letters are addressed to solve those particular crises or problems or good events. But not the book of Ephesians. Ephesians isn't written to just one church, and it isn't written to solve any problems. Now, Ephesus was the biggest city in the Roman province of Asia, what we think of today as the country of Turkey. This is, we're going to show a picture of the amphitheater in Ephesus. You can still go there today. Uh, This thing is amazingly well-preserved. You can walk there. Paul walked on that center. He was in that amphitheater many times. He walked down the roads. Ephesus is one of the most amazing archaeological sites because it's so well preserved. It was a huge city for its day. Archaeologists estimate there was over 200,000 people living in the city of Ephesus. Paul planted a church here. Those events are recorded in the book of Acts, and we're going to explore that in the weeks to come. But what you need to know is that this letter was actually written to a whole bunch of churches all over the Roman province of Asia. But Ephesus was the biggest church in the biggest city, had the most prestige, was the dominant uh, city of the region. And so over time, the letter became known as the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the church in the Ephesians. Here's chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. You notice that little A. 
Now, when you see one of those, that means there's a footnote. If you're reading electronically, you can just uh, click on it, or you can look down at the bottom of your page, and it says, some early manuscripts do not have in Ephesus. So what scholars believe happened, it was written to all these churches, but because Ephesus was the biggest, the most dominant, over centuries, it just became known as the letter to the Ephesians. If you think about it in our context, this would be like the Apostle Paul writing a letter to all the churches in the lower mainland and southern Vancouver Island. It would get circulated from Chilliwack to Langley, Delta, Richmond, North Vancouver, West Vancouver, downtown East Side, Vancouver proper, Saanich, Souk, Victoria, Cobble Hill, Duncan, Ladysmith, Nanaimo, Parksville. But Vancouver, being the biggest and most well-known by a country mile, so eventually over several centuries it become known as the letter to the churches of Vancouver. So you're thinking, great, Darren, that's all really interesting, very informative, but what difference does all of that make? Well, here is the absolutely unique power of the book of Ephesians. Because it wasn't just written to one church with a whole bunch of problems. It frees up the Apostle Paul to write about the heart of the Christian faith. Our series poster says, What We Believe About God and how that is the perfect foundation for what we do for God. And that's what the book of Ephesians brings together, what we believe about God and what we do for God. It frees the Apostle Paul to tell us what God has put in his heart, and his heart is absolutely bursting in this book. He just has to get it out, what the mystery of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, Jesus truly is the center of history. All of history before Christ pointed towards him, and all of history after Jesus Christ is affected by him. But in order to kind of get our heads wrapped around and get ready to hear the book of Ephesians, or Paul's letter to the church there, I need to tell you about an architect. We're going to put up this guy's picture. This is Frank Lloyd Wright. He died in 1959, and in 1991, the American Institute of Architects named him the greatest American architect of all time. Quite an amazing guy. Wright operated out of a philosophy he called organic architecture. What that meant was when he designed a building to be built, he wanted it to work really well with the people that were going to use it, as well as the natural environment. He wanted it to organically fit in. One of the best examples is a house he built called Falling Water, 70 kilometers southeast of Pittsburgh. Not outstanding. The house was built partly over a waterfall on Bear Run, a five-mile tributary of the Yo River. Lillian and Edgar Kaufman of Kaufman's Department Stores bought the land, hired Frank Lloyd Wright, and paid for that unique house to be built. I love how he didn't disturb the river, but he simply built over top of it and allowed it to flow through. Kind of makes you wonder if Lillian and Edgar, as they lived there, felt a constant need to go to the washroom. (laughs) But we will never know. You can actually still go there and visit that house today. It's been designated a a heritage site uh, in the United States. 
All right, so now you have a little sense of the vision and the skill of Frank Lloyd Wright. In 1920, the owners of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo approached Frank Lloyd Wright, presented him with the challenge of improving on the original design, which had been built in 1880. Now, the problem being that Tokyo is one of the cities in the world most prone to earthquakes. They're having regular earthquakes there all the time. And Wright's investigation showed that underneath the hotel was a massive layer of mud. It was over 60 feet deep. And most architects would have panicked at that, but he came up with an ingenious solution. He built a really wide foundation, like a platform, and it actually floated on top of that 60-foot layer of mud. And he realized that the mud and that broad, broad foundation would actually act as a shock absorber in, a, in an earthquake. The building was completed, and wouldn't you know, they suffered the worst earthquake shortly after in 52 years in Japan. Everything around the hotel was devastated and fell down. You can see the red arrow pointing to the wing of the Imperial Hotel. It was completely fine. Everything else fell down. You know, the importance of a solid, well-built foundation cannot be overstated. It's so important. And what's true of buildings is especially true of our lives. The foundation is very, very important. The book of Ephesians provides that. And I'm kind of going to use that metaphor of a house today in my three points. The best foundation, the second point will be the nicest house, and the third Point will be the point of home ownership. All right, enough preamble. Let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. What a beginning to this amazing letter. The Apostle Paul, guided by the Holy Spirit, makes three astounding and extremely important declarations about anybody who chooses to follow Jesus. And Paul makes it extremely clear that when we choose to follow Christ, we are asking him to be our Savior, the one who saves us, but we're also asking him to be our Lord, the one who guides and directs every step of our lives. Paul declares that when we have made that choice to fully follow Jesus and embrace him, then what God in Christ has done for us is three amazing things. He has blessed us, he has chosen us, and he has destined us. Well, I took the time to uh, translate Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. From the original Greek into English this week, I don't know what inspired such nerdy behavior. Maybe it was the snow. Anyways, doing so caused me to see a few things that didn't jump out at me in the English text. So we've read the NIV, the New International Version. Now you get the Darren International Version, the DIV. And for some odd reason, Katrina felt necessary to put me in ski goggles up there. I have no... Thank you, Katrina. Okay, so here's the DIV. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has put on us favor 
and benefits, all the spirit-filled blessings that are associated with heaven and heavenly beings in Christ. Since he chose us in him before the foundation of the universe to be holy and set apart for God's service and to be morally blameless before him. Not that interesting nuance? We have God's favor and benefits put on us. All the spiritual blessings that are associated with heaven and heavenly beings. And all of that is because of Christ. I bet you didn't wake up this morning and go, all right, a new day. I have all the blessings of heaven and heavenly beings on me. I bet you didn't think of that when you woke up this morning. Now, what does all that mean and entail? I don't know exactly for sure, but I do know that heaven is our face-to-face experience of God. When we meet Christ in heaven face-to-face, there will be no sorrow, no depression, no fear, no violence, no evil. None of that is permitted in heaven. We are in the immediate presence of God. So what Paul is trying to tell us is that because of Jesus Christ, what he has done, we can right now tap into that peace and joy that heaven offers. Doesn't mean that the Christian life is free from challenges and problems. Obviously not. But it does mean we have free access to the peace that Christ offers. Now that is good news. Paul takes us even deeper says, in love, he decided beforehand to adopt us as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good favor of his will. We have a number of families in our church that have adopted children. Thank you for that choice. You're giving kids an incredible home and an incredible life. Adoption is a very precious and powerful thing. I'm not surprised that Paul picks up on it as a metaphor for what God has done for each of us in Jesus. I love the story of two kids on the elementary school playground. And the one kid decides he's going to be a bully. And so he goes up to the kid who knows, he knows is adopted. And he said, hi, you're adopted, you loser. You don't even know who your real mom and dad is. And the adopted kid looks at him, gets right up in his face and says, you know what, your parents were stuck with you. <laughs> they didn't even have a choice. But my parents chose me. I love that. And you know what? That is what Paul is attempting to tell us. He's saying that is the power and the beauty of what God in Christ has done for you and I. Because the human race chose sin and keeps right on choosing it every day, we are all guilty. We are all separated from God by our wrongdoing, our sin, our evil, our rebellion. But God in Christ sacrificed himself paid the price, bought us back so he could adopt us as his kids. And when did he do it? According to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, it was before the foundation of the universe. Now that is a mind-blowing thought. Before God created time and light and stars and planets and oceans and land and trees and birds and fish, he already planned to adopt us, you and I, as his daughters and sons. That deserves an amen. 
That is the Christian basis. Really, ultimately, if you go to a Christian counselor, that is the bedrock underlying foundation for dealing with things like anxiety and depression. All of the counseling, all of the medications are excellent, and those get built on top. But the foundation underneath is that the God of this universe loved us so much that he chose us before he even created the first Adam that we would be adopted as kids. You know what else that forms? That's the bedrock for the Christian basis for a healthy self-image. That keeps us away from the extremes of pleasing other people and trying to make that the basis of our self-worth. This is so foundational for life. Well, from that foundation, Paul shifts to building the house. Not just any house, but the killer mansion you have always dreamed of. Let's pick it up in verses 6 through 8. Paul says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. This week I was driving in our truck and the radio was turned to Jack 96.9 FM. Now if you don't know that station that comes from Vancouver, it plays a variety of stuff, but probably half their playlist is from the 80s. They definitely have uh, the target market there. So on comes this song from the group, the Paolas, called Dirty Water. And there's the Paolas and all of their 1980s coolness. They were actually from Vancouver. They were a Vancouver-based band. Now, if you are under 20 here this morning, you're like, I have never heard of the Paolas. Don't worry, some pop star like Billie Eilish or Selena Gomez will redo their songs, I'm sure. Uh, If you're my age, this will be kind of a little trip down memory lane. And if you're 65 or over, you've never heard this song either. So... I just, uh, we're going to take a listen to a little snippet of their song, uh, Dirty Water, today. And, and you've got to kind of get into the 1980s here. Imagine yourself in neon clothes, drinking Jolt Cola. All right. So I put a little bit in before we get to the real lyrics I want you to highlight. But just kind of just enjoy it. Just embrace the 80s. Oh, <laughs> 
All right, some pretty interesting lyrics. Now, obviously, I don't know the payolas personally to ask them exactly what they intended, but I think it's intended as a slam on organized religion, probably Roman Catholicism in particular, the reference to holy water. But in one kind of different way, as I was driving along this week, I thought, you know what? I do agree with that lyric in one sense. Because religion, in the sense of people trying really hard to do their best to reach God, to to gain favor with God by keeping all the rules, doing all the rituals, if that's what we mean by religion, then you know what? Religion has never made anyone clean. Contrast that idea with the Ephesians of 1, 7, and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. It's not water that will wash and make us clean. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His lifeblood given for all of us. And that alone has the power to wash us and to make us clean. As I mentioned earlier, I did some translating work. Here's verses 7 to 8. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, never mind. In whom we have the redemption and release from captivity through his blood, freedom from guilt and punishment for our violation of God's moral character and standards. According to the wealth and riches of his grace that he has caused to be in full abundance upon us. I love the nuance that brings out. Because sinful humanity, with all of our lying, our cheating, our backstabbing, our gossiping, our murder, our cruelty, you know what? We deserve God's punishment. We have indeed violated the character of God, who is morally perfect. We've violated God's standards. But Jesus stepped into the gap and said, I know they're guilty. I know that's what they deserve. But I will take the punishment. I will take it on myself. The most astounding act of love in all of history. That's why Paul can write, they have release from captivity, freedom from guilt and punishment. And that is the good news of the gospel, Ocean View Community Church. The normal state of the follower of Jesus is that a Christian should be free from guilt and punishment. We all mess up in sin. We do that on a regular basis. But we should immediately confess it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And then an instant, total release of guilt. Yet I meet so many Christians who subscribe to what I have come to term worm theology. I've heard people tell me over and over, God is so holy and I'm so sinful, I'm like a dirty, rotten sinner, worse than a worm crawling through the dirt. And I want to say to us loud and clear, church, that is not your normal state as a follower of Jesus. If you are constantly living in guilt, if you're beating yourself up over your sin and your mistakes, confess it and let it go. Live in the freedom that Jesus offers. I entitled this sermon, Get Your Blessing On. Part of what I mean by that blessing is this concept. 
we get to take a deep breath and say, I am forgiven and I'm free. I can know that God in Christ loves me and he is proud of me. Once you built a house on a good foundation, you get that incredible moment when you stand back and appreciate the whole finished thing. And then the thought occurs to you, I wonder what this house will be used for. How many people will come through this house, stay for a cup of coffee, maybe a meal, maybe they'll stay overnight. How many people will be blessed by this house? And that's where Paul ends in verse 10. Let's pick it up in verses 8 through 10. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You know, God's people have been waiting century upon century upon century for the promised Messiah. The promised one who would rescue God's people. And they were waiting diligently. And it was a mystery. When would God send his one and only son? Paul says, in Christ, God has made known that mystery to us. It's a great feeling when a mystery is revealed, isn't it? Calista and Malia love to play the game Clue. And uh, we'll sit around playing that game. And you always wonder, is it Miss Scarlet in the library with the poison? Is it Colonel Mustard in the kitchen with the dagger? At the end of the game, when you make your final guesses and then you pull out from the envelope and it's revealed who it was. And there's always this collective sigh, oh, that's who it was. And you know what? That's what happened to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus. And he was turned from a persecutor of the church into its most amazing proponent. And Paul had this moment where he said, oh, you are the Messiah. Jesus, you're the one. You're the one we have been waiting for. The mystery was revealed. One of the great pleasures of this job that God has given me as a pastor is I get to watch people have that light bulb moment where they go, you know what? Jesus truly is what I've been hoping for. He's what my heart has been longing for. And that's an incredible moment when that happens. I actually got to spend some time this fall with a young woman in her early 20s. And she was just full of questions. She's like, okay, can you explain this whole Bible thing to me? And, and God, and what's the deal with the church and Jesus? And I just, she has had tons of questions. It was such a privilege to help her answer those and work through it. I said, tell me about your family. And she said, well, my mom's kind of, she calls herself a lapsed Catholic. She goes to Mass once on Christmas Eve a year. So I'm not getting a whole lot of spiritual input from my mom. And she said, interestingly enough, my dad is a very outspoken atheist. He is constantly telling everyone not to believe in God, don't have any deals, whack jobs, and go to church, all that kind of stuff. And I, I was amazed. I said, so that's what you've grown up with. That's all you've known. And yet here you are asking me all these questions. She goes, yeah, it's super weird. She goes, I just feel compelled. I feel like, I feel like, I guess God is like talking to me. Like he's trying to draw me. And I said, yes, 
Absolutely. What you're experiencing is the Holy Spirit in your heart and mind and life drawing you to Christ. What a privilege to see God reveal the mystery to this young woman. And after she left, I had prayed with her and everything, I just reflected and I thought, God, you're amazing. You can reach anybody, anywhere, anytime. It's the condition of our heart that matters. And then finally, the idea in verse 10 is to sum up, to bring everything together. It's actually in the infinitive tense. That means it's not in the past, it's not in the present, it's at some point in the future. What a glorious thought. When Jesus returns, he will bring everything in our world together in unity. That means no more racism. No more division over skin color. What a world that would be. As you too so eloquently sang, till all the colors bleed into one. Till they bleed into one. No more division between rich and poor, but rather true equality. An end to the repression of women, not an obliteration of the differences between men and women, but true equality and opportunity. Every lost child will come home to their family. Every broken relationship will be repaired. Every wrongdoing and injustice made right. That, Ocean View Community Church, is the Jesus that Paul's heart is bursting to tell us about. Jesus who forgives and makes your past right so that we can receive the full blessing of God. Jesus who blessed us, chose us, destined us to be his sons and his daughters through adoption. Jesus who bestows and lavishes on us incredible privileges and blessings. Not religion, but relationship. Jesus, the one who is the answer to the mystery our hearts long for. The one who will finally bring all things to unity in himself. Eugene Peterson comments on this amazing theme in the book of Ephesians. He he writes, Now that we know what is going on, that the energy of reconciliation is the dynamo at the heart of the universe, it's imperative that we join in vigorously and perseveringly. Convinced that every detail in our lives contributes, or not, to what Paul describes as God's plan worked out by Christ. A long-range plan in which everything would be brought together, summed up in him. Everything in deepest heaven and everything on planet Earth. Our series poster has those puzzle pieces locking together. What we know about God and what we do for God. You can't have one without the other. Are you ready to join in vigorously and perseveringly? Because Peterson is right. Every detail in my life, in your life, has the ability to contribute to God's big reconciliation plan. Or not. The choice he leaves to us. Jason, come and pray for us.